Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. Hello, I'm Roscoe Mattia, pronouns he, him, stranger, and welcome to Solidarity Forever, the History of American Labor. Episode 6, New Jersey Feelings. Last time, we discussed the Lowell Mill strike in 1834, the first really modern strike in American history, including marches through town, direct action in making a run on the bank, and a central core leadership. Although they lost, going back to work in June not a whole week after they marched out of the Lowell factories, their cause was not lost. Across the young country, workers followed the newspapers with great interest, inhaling the journalism reporting on the Lowell strike, and they began to apply the lessons learned there to their own labor conflicts. In Lowell, Massachusetts, a mill girl who grumbled about her pay or worried the machines might hurt her or whispered about collective bargaining was said to have New Jersey feelings. The perfect matchbox Lowell girl never had such feelings. It must be something subversive from some dirty mid-Atlantic state. They weren't quite right there. They were off by one whole state. Maniunk, Pennsylvania, was like Lowell's little brother. Their girls didn't show up on snuff boxes. Hell, their girls weren't even born in America. Oh, the shame. But a few enterprising gentlemen noticed what Lowell and the Boston Associates were getting up to and decided they wanted some of that action. By 1834, Maniunk was a humming little town, one that switched sooner and more completely to immigrant labor than Lowell ever did. The Quakers drew in from much the same pools as their Puritan brethren to the north. Girls from Manchester, Edinburgh, Dublin, Hamburg, and Le Havre, fresh from watching their husbands, brothers, sons, and fathers fight for fair standards and better pay. Girls with copies of David Ricardo and old Union flyers tucked in the steamer trunks they brought with them over the Atlantic. To quote historian Cynthia Shelton, Although a reference to factories as hell on earth had first been made with regard to the mills of Manchester, it applied equally well to the early mills of Maniunk. Working in a dust-filled atmosphere in overheated rooms and standing and stooping for hours, Philadelphia workers developed serious disorders and diseases. The ankles of children and young adults swelled from the hours of standing, and children complained of headaches. Serious lung diseases, a type of bronchial inflammation known as spinner's thesis, were common in the unventilated cotton mills of Maniunk. The Manchester of America, long feared, had come, and it was about to get worse. The depression in the cotton market, the same one that inspired the Boston associates to start cutting wages, affected Maniunk just as badly. So the gentlemen owning the mills in Maniunk, the men who owned the machines, the mills, the buildings, in a word, all the capital of Maniunk, decided to make pay cuts of their own. By summer, they settled on an absolutely draconian 20% cut set to start later in the year. The workers' first attempt at an organized strike, a turnout, died an ignoble death for reasons still unclear. The almost strike of 1834, protesting the 20% pay cut, was an inconclusive mess. Why? The same fires that the British immigrants we discussed last time brought with them also brought the destruction of the Lowell strike. 
They brought with them the fiery rhetoric of the English trade unions, calling for the end of capitalism and notions of radical redistribution that wouldn't sound unfamiliar to Robert Dale Owens or Fanny Wright. This opened broadsides from every conservative and centrist source, which meant an ignoble death to the 1834 strike before it even got started. But the leadership retreated and reorganized and realized the fight was not over. Not that it would help them much. By the time the dust settled, all but three of the major organizers had been ridden out of town on a rail. Just another failed strike in 1800s America. Then came 1835, and with the doldrums continuing in the cotton market, management contemplated another pay cut. This one would be even worse. They announced in January that the girls would be getting a whopping 25% pay cut off their already reduced pay, effective May 1st, earning 55 cents for each dollar they'd earned not even a year before. But something felt different this time. There was something in the air in 1835, and some of it was that indefatigable sense of American idealism, American exceptionalism, and American virtue. They weren't in Manchester, Edinburgh, Dublin, or Hamburg anymore. They were in America, where the sky was high and the country ripe for the taking if you had the grit to get it. They weren't suffering under feudal lords, they were working for businessmen who needed a reminder of who the real wealth of this wealthy new country was, and a swift kick in the pants. And no one was more confident than the remaining members of 1834's organizing committee. Three men had emerged from the shadows and the ruins of the 1834 strike to respond to this travesty. They were Thomas Small, a lawyer, William Young, a cord wainer, and Samuel Ogden, a retired gentleman whose wife and daughter worked in the mills. They came together to form a committee, what we would now call an organizing committee. William Young was an adherent of the Second Great Awakening and brought with him a revivalist spirit and a tent revival set of ideas and tactics. Ogden invited his wife and daughter, whose voices we perceive in the printed works that the committee secretly ran off on uh, borrowed presses. Thomas Small ran interference whenever legal threats emerged to the strikers. Because, remember, this is still life under the Polis decision. Just organizing a union is illegal. People versus Fisher, decided that same year, reminded everyone that the courts were still hostile to labor. The court ruled in favor of the employers, once again masquerading as the people, on the logic that society was best served by the wage market and that a conspiracy for such an object is against the spirit of common law. The decision concludes... If the defendants cannot make coarse boots for less than one dollar per pair, let them refuse to do so. But let them not directly or indirectly undertake to say that others shall not do the work for a less price. With the courts on their side, the bosses worked to suppress unions or trade societies, whether they were striking or not. Even while forming mutual associations of merchants, bankers, and management to protect their own common interests. This did not go unnoticed. An editor for Hamilton's New York Post wrote, They were condemned because they had determined not to work for the wages offered them. Can anything be imagined more abhorrent? If this is not slavery, we have forgotten its definition. Strike the right of associating for the sale of labor from the privileges of a free man, and you may as well at once bind him to a master or ascribe him to the soil. 
The definition of privilege is lawful protection for me and not for thee. Notice the parallels to American racialized chattel slavery and the overblown rhetoric equating them. As we discussed in episode 2, Eight Dutchmen and Poles, unfree labor is a continuum, but it is a continuum. Beneath the shadow of the law, friend whispered to friend, colleague to colleague, shiftmate to shiftmate, all through February, about the scheduled cut and what to do about it, fomenting a homegrown strike of Maniunk, Pennsylvania workers filled with those New Jersey feelings. Ogden, Small, and Young's little organizing and printing operation went into overdrive. Their official, pre-prepared even, strike announcement read, we will be in a far worse situation than the paupers of our township. The wages barely sufficient to procure the common necessaries of life. A scanty pittance. We are, without vanity on our part, acknowledged to be the producers of all wealth of society. We are willing to do our duties as operators so long as our employers are willing to pay unto us the prices by which we can obtain a living. Their only real property... Our wages are our rights over which no one but ourselves has any just authority. We will maintain and guard them from any and every encroachment whatsoever. When the bosses printed a classified ad in the newspaper that read, in part, where liberal wages shall be given to 10 or 15 workers and payment made every two weeks, they countered with one that read, a number of men and women are willing to work at liberal wages, such wages as will procure them the necessaries of life, which they, the bosses, are not willing to give them. Notice this. There is no call for the overthrow of the capitalist class. No demand for redistribution of land or the factories. They'd learn from labor's 1834 misadventures. That was a bridge too far for most of the girls, who were, honestly, just ordinary nice girls from the farm who loved America, Jesus, and apple pie, and just wanted their fair share. They could get a lot more workers behind them talking about the spirit of 76 and white slavery and women's rights than they could by calling for class warfare. They were hitting management blow for blow, but no more than that. And the Ogdens, small and young, kept a disciplined line on the public statements. It was about all they could keep discipline on. The strike, while well, it lasted, resisted any attempts at central organization even as they pounded out broadsheet after broadsheet to keep everyone on the same page and the same talking points, with other leaders like Julia Wilson taking off in their own direction. A lot of times, when the action flares up, the propaganda, for and against, seems to come out of nowhere. Suddenly, erudite think pieces, clever slogans, arresting memes, maps proving that those people don't belong here, all seem to pop up from out of nowhere. But it's always people like Young, Small, and the Ogden family who are behind it, working overtime to win the war of words and win hearts and minds. It's what's necessary to win the war of words and the war of ideas. And unless you have some kind of discipline in place to stay on message, you wind up like Occupy Wall Street, which said all sorts of things and wound up saying nothing and doing nothing. I can only imagine how hard the Ogden women, mother and daughter, work to keep everyone in line. The men, of course, were horrified. They saw this as a betrayal of the white feminine ideal they had worked so hard to cultivate, a betrayal of the matchbox Lowell girl's young cousin. These were truly New Jersey feelings. 
William Austin wrote to his own bosses that, Notwithstanding the friendly and disinterested advice which has been on all proper occasions communicated to the girls of the mills, a spirit of evil omen has prevailed, and overcome the judgment and discretion of too many. But William Austin had more than words to fight with. In this groundbreaking strike marked by innovation, Austin invented the company spy. A man named Francis Barat agreed to join with the girls and ferret out the leadership. The mysterious forces behind all these blow-for-blow -blow flyers and ads, behind all the care packages that the strikers were getting. Barat identified the culprits, skipped town, and wound up, of all things, founding Catholic boarding schools across New England. The bosses sharpened their knives, but it never came to that. By May, it looked like the strike was going to win. They had almost all of Manny Young's working class on their side and looked like they could last indefinitely as long as they had enough food. And they did. An associate of William Austin, a manager named Borey, publicly appealed to higher powers, that is, to the police and the clergy, for help. The clergy turned on the workers, denouncing the likes of Ogden, Small, and Young as atheists, serpents in the Garden of Maniunk, Antichrists, and the like. Notably, no police seemed to get involved in the workers' more militant direct actions, like throwing a scab to the ground for trying to cross the picket line, and at least one, in Shelton's words, magistrate, was on the side of the striking workers. But with the power of God behind them, management was ready to move on the revivalist, the lawyer, and the retired gentleman and his family. They were overruled. The families that operated Maniunk as their private fief still held a vestigial sense of noblesse oblige, the feudal European notion that the aristocracy had a duty to care for their serfs, and a rather better developed sense of when to fight and when to cut a deal. The Maniunk mill girls, led and disciplined by their organizing committee, not only stopped the proposed 25% pay cut, but actually won a 5% increase of their wages. Many of them, there at the end of May, went into Philadelphia in high spirits, telling everyone they met that the papers did not lie, they had won, really won. But we're not ready to get to the Philadelphia general strike just yet. For now, let's talk about your hours. If you're working full time, how many hours is that? That's right, 40 hours a week, eight hours a day, five days a week. That's union all the way. The fight for shorter hours was the issue in American labor for most of the 19th century. And although labor fired the first shots back in 1827, 1835 was when they hauled out the big guns for the first time. From the grueling dawn till dusk hours, designed to reflect the backbreaking labor schedule of the farm, but all year round, to your 40 full-time hours a week is the story of labor or at least one of the largest and most colorful strands in the tapestry of American labor history. The overtime your boss is legally required to pay you, the rights of part-time workers, mandated lunch breaks and 15-minute breaks by certain hours of your shift, all of these spring from the well of the fight for shorter hours, first 10, then 8, and today. Right now, there are some of our friends in Europe and North America fighting for six. And if you, like so many folks, have to work a part-time job, or several, you too benefit from the gains won by full-time labor. Those hours are sacrosanct, and your hours can't be retroactively canceled by a vengeful employer, because anything up to eight hours, they have to pay you at your usual rates. And any more, that's when you get overtime. 
Both of these also spring from the well of the fight for shorter hours. And it's here, in 1835, that we pull out the artillery. In the 1830s, self-education was all the rage. What was reserved for men, almost always men, like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and Henry Knox at the end of the 17th century, steeped in Enlightenment philosophy, was now everyone's concern, and everyone's obsession, 40 years later. Like Taylor Swift, self-education came back stronger than a 1790s trend. The citizen farmers of Jefferson's dreams were deeply interested in educating not only their children in Jacksonian grammar schools, but themselves with lending libraries, lectures, and adult education. The dream was all geared to make the American citizen wiser, more cosmopolitan, and better informed political citizen. People who could competently fill local city councils, could address their concerns with their neighbors, could vote for the best man for the job, and not the one who gave him free beer. After all, they'd gotten the vote less than a decade before. It wasn't a given they wouldn't vote democracy out of office, like the Romans, or the Greeks, or the Florentines had done. They carried that American exceptionalism in all their white, working-class, racist little hearts, that given the proper education, the vast and growing ocean of American labor could safeguard their hard-won republic not just against kings and lords, but also against plantation aristocrats and New York bankers. But when exactly would the working man, toiling dawn to dusk six days a week, attend these lyceum lectures, read the books in the lending library, learn good morals and good citizenship? Where would his children go to school when they're racing from machine to machine in some factory from the day they can walk? During their lunch break? As Ellen pointed out last time, they have a scant 30 minutes, and that's never enough for you or me today, even with the microwave in the break room and instant noodles, much less walking home and back to cook and eat your lunch. The only thing standing in the way of these free, white, voting citizens' leisure time, their self-improvement as citizen workers, the righteous Republican education of the next generation, hell, the only thing standing in the way of saving the American Republic itself, was their boss's insistence that they work until they drop dead of exhaustion. A circular, or flyer, during the Boston strike in 1835 sums it up well. The odious, cruel, unjust, and tyrannical system which compels the operative mechanic to exhaust his physical and mental powers. We have rights. We have duties to perform as American citizens and members of society which forbid us to dispose of more than 10 hours for a day's work. Persuasive as these arguments were, they didn't exactly work on the capitalist bosses. One newspaper shot back that the 10-hour day strikes the very nerve of industry and good morals by dictating the hours of labor. To be idle several of the most useful hours of the morning and evening will surely lead to intemperance and ruin. Here we see that Puritan streak, the one that governed Lowell and its pure virgin white girls, back again. Far from saving the Republic, employers saw in the 10-hour day the erosion of the working man's morals. New York Mayor Philip Hone commented in his diary, I fear the elements of disorder are at work, the bands of Irish and other foreigners instigated by the mischievous councils of the trade union and other combinations of discontented men, are acquiring strength and importance which will ere long be difficult to quell. Once again, this belief that unions cannot spring up from the workers themselves 
faced with terrible conditions that leave no choice but to organize and fight, but from the outside, from alien, seditious elements like immigrants, African Americans, or Jews. The mayor of New York believed that any strike, regardless of the workers' demands, was a terrible thing. And this man commanded the police and could call in the National Guard as a personal favor. Notice these. These are the same arguments that management will use with you in slightly modernized language. They'll tell you that the union is something they have in big cities, not here in real America. Or that unions are just small-town hicks with no place in a sophisticated urban city like yours. They'll tell you that these unions, so alien to your company's culture, just want to stir up trouble for no reason. They'll tell you that unions mean corruption, nepotism, laziness, and that proud, hard-working employees should want nothing to do with them. To fight our fight, to win our rights, we need to be prepared for what the bosses are going to bring to the battlefield. But despite management's hoary arguments, this was an issue that workers could all rally around. Only 12 hours of work a day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m.? With an hour off for breakfast and another off for lunch? Imagine what you could do with all that free time! In Baltimore in 1833, no less than 17 separate construction trades, almost the entire construction industry, walked out for a 12-hour day. In early 1835, Bostonian masons, carpenters, stonecutters, and others marched out right under the Boston Associates' windows. Both failed, like the Lowell Mill girls, but they set the stage for what came next. In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in 1835, the carpenters struck. You may be noticing a theme here. The building trades. That's because all the building trades suffered worst for the dawn-till-dusk system. In other industries, the income more or less averaged out over a year. But in construction, the lull in winter where there was no work to be had was absolutely brutal. And as we recall from episode 3, The Exceptional Americans, winters were damn cold and hungry in the city of brotherly love. For them, a 10-hour day could cover the whole winter months and make living viable. So, the carpenters kicked off a strike, and on my birthday, June 5th, for a wage increase and a 10-hour day. They'd been nursing their wounds since the last attempt, back in 1827, and were ready for a fight. The other building trades joined them. The masons, the bricklayers, you know, the usual guys, just like back in 27. They issued a circular, quoted earlier, naming their demands and denouncing the odious, cruel, unjust, and tyrannical system that oppressed them. The circular was a smashing success. The president of the Carpenters Society of Philadelphia told Seth Luther that the carpenters considered the Boston Circular to have broken their shackles, loosened their chains, and made them free from the galling yoke of excessive labor. It's time to introduce Seth Luther, the prototype of the American labor organizer. Born in 1795 in Providence, Rhode Island, by 1835, Luther cut a colorful figure. Tall, lanky, sardonic, always with a bright green jacket and a plug of tobacco in his jaw. Fans of Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice are free to picture Colin Firth. You wouldn't be far wrong. Working as a carpenter by that time, Luther rapidly came to the forefront of the carpenter strike as it expanded. Referred to as the traveling agent, he went from town to town encouraging and supporting strikers and unionists. His motto was, 
You cannot raise one part of the community above another part unless you stand on the bodies of the poor. The man pumped out a torrent of pamphlets, circulars, and broadsides describing the hellish conditions of women and children in places like Maniunk or Patterson, New Jersey. The nerves of the poor woman and child, he wrote, in the cotton mills are quivering with an almost dying agony from excessive labor to support the splendor of the rich. Seth Luther, the carpenter with the sardonic pen and the silver tongue, was the very public spokesman of the movement. This is the beginning of labor-identified leadership, which, among other things, means I don't have to use workarounds like the dictatress to discuss public labor leaders. Using Luther as their model, the strikers instituted a traveling committee, a group of working-class Philadelphians charged by their friends and colleagues to stir up sympathy strikes and material aid for their Philadelphian siblings. This is, as near as I can tell, the first sign of intercity and interstate solidarity, walking out in solidarity with the strikers, shipping them food and rent money, bringing national pressure to bear on the stiff-necked bosses, and making sure all the workers have enough resources to last out the strike. The carpenters and allied trades in Philadelphia were starting to think strategically, as ever Henry Knox or George Washington did through the course of the Revolution. In Skykill, New York, the unskilled laborers struck in solidarity. Mainly Irish, mainly unskilled, they marched across the docks, led by a worker with a sword, and threatened a swift death to whoever crossed the picket line to unload the 75 ships now stranded in the harbor. Soon, workers from all over the industrial map were joining in solidarity. Leather dressers and bakers, printers and city employees, their mass meeting of all of the above plus the building trades plus doctors, lawyers, and such businessmen as dared show their faces, unanimously agreed on a set of demands including shorter hours, higher pay for women, and the boycott of any coal merchant who tried to move cargo in the city of Skykill, New York. They issued their own circular, which I have in the show notes at rjeanmathieu.com. That's R-J-E-A-N-M-A-T-H-I-E-U dot com. Hundreds of circulars were coming out in dozens of cities, and all thanks to the Philadelphia Traveling Committee. Now, is this an alien and seditious effort by outsiders to undermine the capitalists and labor relations, as the bosses claim to this day? Well, yes and no. Yes, because the Traveling Committee really weren't from Skykill or Baltimore or Boston. The moment they left Philly, they were aliens to the local situation. But no because the local situation was the same as it was in Philadelphia, regardless of where they went. The building trades out of work in winter, the wages of pittance, especially for working women, and everyone worked to the bone from sunrise to sunset. To my mind, the Philadelphia Traveling Committee were effectively, your problems are our problems. We all have the same problems. Here's what we've done about it in Philly. If you need material support or organization help, just ask and letting the locals pull together to start their own organized labor movement. In a word, solidarity. If that's alien and seditious, John Adams can lock me right up. And I suspect you, listener, would be in the cell next to mine. The traveling committee changed what should have been an ordinary building trade strike, the kind that had been happening sporadically across the country since working men got the vote in 1827, into something new. Not just a trade strike, not just an industrial strike, not even just a Philadelphia strike. 
No, this was a general strike involving skilled and unskilled workers, white-collar and blue-collar workers, southern workers and northern workers, drawing the whole country into a three-week battle of wills between the Philadelphia merchants and Philadelphia's working classes as a whole, both drawing on the resources of a whole young nation to win. And it worked. By God, it worked! Once the civil servants and city employees walked out, it was all over but the shouting. The Philly strike had started on June 6th, and on June 22nd, 1835, Philadelphia announced that hours of labor of the working men employed under the authority of the city corporation would be from 6 to 6 during the summer season, allowing one hour for breakfast and one for dinner. They handed out pay increases for piecework, and on July 8th, James Barron of the Naval Yard wrote the brass that the mechanics in this city of all denominations have recently made, as it is termed, a turnout for the regulation of hours of labor, and so general, there is no probability that they will secede from their demands. The brass, on August 26th, mandated that the Philadelphia docks need only work 10 hours a day. The reaction among the American working class was electric. I mean, why wouldn't it be? When was the last time we covered a successful strike? Like, episode two? Utilizing a whole slew of new tactics, like traveling committees, a single sexy slogan like six to six, and pooling resources, Philadelphia had brought the city to its knees and gotten damn near everything they asked for. A workers' committee in the Philadelphia Naval Yards told no less than President Andrew Jackson himself that the committee are sure that if the example is set in Philadelphia, it will be required in other places, and they will not attempt to disguise the pleasure it would give them as citizens and as working men to see a reformation taking place under the auspices of the government. Strikes followed in North Carolina, South Carolina, and New York. States toppled like dominoes, and the 10-hour day became the custom and expectation, even if not actual law, of the land. Except Boston, obviously, where Boston Brahmins still distrusted working men or women with leisure time. So, what have we learned this time? First, that both sides innovate tactics. It's important to learn from labor history, but not get bogged down in it. This is a mistake management can afford to make, since they have the resources to cover up their blunders, and as we're all very well aware, plenty of experience papering over serious mistakes. They're still repeating the same stories they were peddling back in the 1830s. You can't afford to rely exclusively on the tactics I'm telling you here in solidarity forever. You have to be nimble, adaptable. No two unions, no two strikes are exactly the same. You might need to secure allies on the city council, or win the war of hearts and minds from your friends and neighbors. You may hold a public march, or change all your slack avatars to the union symbol. It all depends on how you're confronting management and why. And we absolutely need to have the initiative if the bosses aren't going to crush your union before you get started. Second, every person striking is more pressure on management. The general strike succeeded in less than a month because they pulled together as many workers in as many states behind the slogan of 6 to 6, the 12-hour day, and Philadelphia as their vanguard. Philly was in the limelight, but strikes went out across the country. We've seen this ourselves. In 2023, the WGA strike wasn't the only strike, not even the only strike about large language models, mistakenly called AI, 
but they were the strike about it that we saw in the papers. It was the test case for how management and labor were going to treat LLM in the future. The fact that they won meant everybody else won, on precedent. Third, and this really is key, keep discipline when you talk to anyone outside of the union. You can't afford to be talking about BLM and abolishing the police and safety standards and AI and foreign policy and the fight for 15 and raising your own company's wages all in the same campaign. That's putting too little energy into too many directions. And at risk of tone policing, you can't afford to call for the dismantling of the state and the nationalization of all private corporations anywhere people can hear you. Manayunk's second strike worked where the first failed, in part because they reined in the fiery speeches and stuck to America, mom, and apple pie, peddling socialism with American characteristics instead of full-throated vanguard communism. Certainly, discuss all these things at your union meetings, but keep a firm grip on public communications. Finally, solidarity forever. This is the first ad hoc development of what would come to be called the Strike Fund, the stores of food and money to keep the strikers alive and involved while the strike lasts. We'll be talking more about the Strike Fund and its twin sister, membership dues, when we get to the National Trades Convention with Seth Luther. But the basic idea is to have the resources to go to war when you, you know, go to war, even if you have to ask for them out of town. I could have talked about any number of strikes in 1835. As I said, workers across the country had charted the rise and fall of the Lowell strike and spent the rest of 1834 planning, organizing, stockpiling. It all flowered the next year. So why these two? Because these two feed back into Lowell. Next time, we're getting back to our old friend Harriet Hanson Robinson and her sisters-in-arms in America's slightly tarnished, shining city of labor relations. They'd lost the first round back in 34, but as another slow textile market threatened, they gathered for round two, the big one, the Lowell Strike of 1836. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong